This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by the Reformed African American Network. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining us also, as always, is the president and co-founder of the Reformed African American Network, Jamar Tisby. Jamar, what's happening? We are doing something fun today. Trying something different. And so Yes, this is very special. Very <laughs> special, very rare that we're gonna do an ask me anything an AMA, or I should say ask us anything. Um, this was actually originally aired in the Past the Mic Facebook group, the private Facebook group, and we are releasing it to you guys so that you can hear it and you should also Closed door join the PTM group. Yeah, you should yeah. join the PTM group because you never know we're gonna do this again. We, you know, may hop on and not share it with everyone. So they should join the group, right, Jamar? Special for insiders only, those part of the the uh, Facebook Pass the Mic Covenant community. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not a covenant community now. No, okay. Not the covenant community. A community. And we do have a sort of covenant twist, no. of, you know, gracious conversation. Yeah, you should definitely go join in. We started the, the Pass the Mic Facebook group in order to provide some sort of space on the web that wasn't going to descend into the pits of hell in terms of the comments, <laughs> uh, where there was some baseline civility to talk about right. some very sensitive issues. Now, we've had our ups and downs. Uh, it's it's a large group now. And so the larger you get, the harder it is to kind of monitor comments. And so it's still social media. It's a private group, but it doesn't mean it's like super lock and key. And so you still need to be discerning. But I have been encouraged by the candor, the level of honesty of the questions and the answers. And for those, I mean, you can sort of get out of it what you put into it. And so for those who do engage charitably, I think it's been a really good community. Yeah, absolutely. And we also have our fearless producer, the award-winning Bo York. He's yes, also sir. with us as well. Yes, sir. And you know, I, you know, I like to set expectations because this particular episode, as y'all said, it's very fun. It's something that we've never done before. And that means the listening experience is also going to feel a little bit less. I mean, I'm, I'm going to leave some of our, our, uh, uh, technical issues in there because they kind of led to some really great commentary. For example, right here at the beginning, you're going to hear while we were waiting to get Tyler on board, we got a history lesson from uh, from Jamar that that is just I I just do not want to cut. So when it's all said and done, it's going to feel a little rough. Um, but I promise you, I did. Uh, <laughs> I'll I'll still take a bit of a critical ear towards editing, but one way or the other, it's going to be different. You know, imperfection is part of what makes life interesting. So. This is a very right. good object lesson in that. But yeah, we are definitely going to do this again. This was so much fun interacting live <laughs> yeah, with with folks and fantastic questions. I'm hoping we can get to some of the ones we didn't answer by typing out responses in the comments section. And so you can go to this post and look at the thread, both for questions and hopefully coming soon, some answers. And you know what? 
keep posting questions. Um, they can also make great topics for future Pass the Mic episodes. Guys, we love you. We are so thrilled um, to be part of this community with you. We're all learning together. And believe me, as hosts of this show, we are learning from you. So thank you so much for the support. Yeah, thank you, guys. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this closed-door conversation here on Pass the Mic. Guys, we know that y'all are going to grant us a lot of grace as this is our first time doing this. Um, So, yeah, there are ways around that. I have nothing good to say about Skype right now. (laughs) Tyler, uh, actually, Jamar, why don't you wax poetic here for a minute? Uh, Tyler, I'm going to go ahead and mute your line for a second while I troubleshoot something for Jamar. I just need to figure out what to talk about. And so it's Black History Month, folks. If you are on social media, which you are if you're watching this, I've been posting a daily, um, very brief deal uh, of Black History on my Facebook. And there's also a thread on Twitter. Now, I will say I have been slacking, well, not slacking off, but I got behind six days behind. So there is a gap between days nine and 14. So if you're looking for that, I apologize. I'm going to get all of those caught up in the next few days and hopefully actually put them all into a running blog post. So you can just go back to that post and check each day. And so by the end of the month, we should have 28 different, very short, kind of Black History Month facts. But in the meantime, you can follow along day by day. You can go back and see what's um, what the previous ones have been. I'll tell you a little bit about today's Black History moment. And so it was about a man named Denmark Vesey or Vesey. He was born on a Dutch plantation or a, a Dutch colony in West Africa. He was bought by a man named Captain Joseph Vesey, where he gets his last name, and was aboard a slave ship for a while till he got sold to uh, a slave owner in St. Domingue, which is now Haiti, which, by the way, was renowned. Like, all slavery was bad no matter where you were, but Haiti was renowned for being really, really bad in terms of disease, hard work, um, literally working slaves to death. And so folks think that Denmark Vesey faked epilepsy in order for his uh, slave owner to to not want him. And so literally that's what happened. So Captain Joseph Vesey, his original owner, came back around to St. Domingue and the person he sold him to said, hey, this boy has epilepsy. He keeps falling down, having these fits. You need to take him back. And so he did. And so that's how uh, Vesey got off of the island of Haiti. He was a servant on the ship for a while. And then they settled eventually in Charleston, South Carolina, where he won the lottery and was able to buy his own freedom for $600. He was not, and I think this is just so tragic, but it's a common, common uh, story of slavery. He was not able to buy the freedom for his wife or children. Eventually, wow. he had to get remarried because his wife was still a slave. Um, so that all that happened. And then, get this, Denmark Vesey was a Presbyterian. He was a oh, Presbyterian wow. in Charleston, but then a series of... Uh, Issues of racial discrimination caused him, along with droves of other African-Americans, to withdraw from Second Presbyterian Church in Charleston and start, get this, an African Methodist Episcopal Church, which was the ancestor of the church we've all we tragically come to know um, 
Emmanuel AME or Mother Emmanuel in Charleston. So Denmark Vesey was a part wow. of that church. Wow. Yeah. And uh, he is best known for plotting what would have been probably the largest slave revolt in North America had they been able to pull it off. And so it involved, mm. it was going to involve up to 9,000 slaves. But as word spread, some of the slaves got nervous. They told their slave owners and they, they caught all of the leaders. And so Vesey was executed in... I think it was July 2nd, 1822, along with 34 other people. Um, but what was interesting is he connected it to his faith. He was preaching from Exodus, wow. themes of liberation and justice and getting people all riled up. So there's your Black History moment for today. That's good, man. That's crazy, bro. <laughs> all right. So we got Tyler back online. Uh, Jamar, you can now hear Tyler? Yes. Okay. Good stuff. What's up, Jamar? What's what up, TBZ? What's up, Tyler? <laughs> he, he wasn't there for that he wasn't there for that uh, he mistyped your name and I said that's the struggle version of Tyler Tryler <laughs> well, oh, Tryler yeah. yeah that's what that's what my wife would call me my wife would call me Tryler <laughs> now y'all are good I tell you what though I w- I'll go ahead and ask the first question which is I, you yeah. know when uh, what I want to know is Tyler how did you get involved with RAN <laughs> that's a long story you sure you sure we want to go there go ahead man kick it off Okay, so I got involved with Rand. Actually, the first time I ever met Jamar was at, I believe it was 2012, the Unashamed Conference. That's right. And it was something that Reach Records was putting on in Atlanta. And I ran into Jamar. He was standing out in front of the RTS booth. And this was the first of many times where he tried to get me to come to RTS Jackson. And um, <laughs> I think we had like a an hour conversation, if I'm not mistaken. We just yeah. sat right out at there the and table. just talked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I remember I missed the session that was going on. <laughs> so whatever the session was happening, I missed it. And we were just talking about, you know, being black and reformed and some of the tensions we were feeling. Even this is long before the current, you know, kind of justice movement, racial reconciliation movement, however you want to call it. But yeah, so I met Jamar there and we exchanged information. He reached out to me and we didn't talk again until the Gospel Coalition Conference the next year. And that was when Rand kind of had its big start where we had the morning session and then there was a, a big showing. There was John Piper there and a number of others there. Um, so we continued conversations there with Jamar and Phil. And then I drove up to Legacy with Philip Philip Holmes and we drove up to Legacy together. And that was about, in total, I think that was like 24 hours in the car together. So Ooh. that was a lot. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So we got to know each other very well, uh, for better or worse. And <laughs> I'm messing. But we had a lot of fun. And so he said, man, you should come up to Jackson for kind of the RAN launch meeting. And that was where we got together a small group of people, try to map out what it looks like to have RAN network. And Pastor Mike was kind of in that, but I met Bo and that's kind of what sparked it. But so we we talked there and I kind of stepped away for a little bit when I was getting married and then came back. And yeah, so the rest is history. Wait, stepped away when you were getting married. As I recall, you spent your honeymoon with us. <laughs> <laughs> At TGC. I don't know what you're talking about, man. Yo, you, you misremembering, man. That's all the facts. I did. I did spend my... Listen, let me tell y'all this. I did spend my honeymoon. TGC 2015. It sounded like a great idea at the time. It sounded like a super gospel center idea. Never do that. Now, we, that wasn't all that we did. We also went to... We don't need the details. In Tampa. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. Yo, you got me all flustered now. Hold up, man. You know Valentine's Day was yesterday. Man. Come on. But nah, so we, we went to another place after we went to Disney and stuff. But 
no, like never do that. Never <laughs> do that. Like I met up with, I met Pastor Thabiti there and he was like, brother, what are you doing? And I was like, well, you know, I thought it would be a good idea. He's like, brother, what are you doing? I was glad. You I just said, there. I don't get to see my people a lot. So, you know. All right. So the homie Kevin, what up, Kevin? Um, he is one of the mods in PTM. He said, what are the best ways to mobilize the church away from a mindset of salvation only to a more holistic view of what God says in our interactions with the world? This is a Jamar question, of course. This is fun. This is like a whole episode of soapboxing. Um, <laughs> right, right. My personal conviction is start small. So gather a group, a, a coalition of the willing. Could be three to four people, could be five to six people, could be eight or nine or 12 people. But you get that group going. It, it, it seldom works. And anybody who's been in a leadership or an administrative position knows it seldom works for one constituent to come up to you and say, hey, we need to do this. And then all of a sudden you, you know, the light bulb comes on and you, you change your priorities. That's not typically how change works within an organization, um, including the church. And so what, what happens is, uh, if you get a small group together first, number one, you don't need to ask permission. <laughs> And I'm not being subversive here. Right. Uh, I just mean it, it, it yes, doesn't. You are. It, well, maybe positively so, um, but it doesn't require a committee approval or whatever. You just it's just like, hey, let's all grab dinner or something or let's go and watch this movie and then discuss it. It's informal is what I mean. And that scratches a couple of itches. Number one, you get your fix of this kind of conversation. So so it can be very, very frustrating if you are waiting for the church to take this on as a topic and it's taking a long time. So with this small group, you you get to have these conversations and not wait for everyone, including the leadership, to pick up on it. Secondly, you get to sort of refine your ideas in conversation with other people at your church. And so they'll have ideas, you'll have ideas. And then I recommend have some concrete, specific goals and outcomes. Don't just go to the leadership of your church and say, hey, we want race to be more of a topic. What does that mean? Um, propose right. a series, uh, say we ought to attend this conference or live stream this event and, and talk about it with, with our small group or, or whatever it might be. Now, if you're in leadership, it's a little bit different. And so it's a different if you're senior pastor or associate or assistant, if you're on staff, if you're a woman, all of those things come into play. But just speaking from a lay, lay person's perspective, um, don't necessarily think that change is going to come or start with you going to the administration or the leadership. Uh, rather, start with start with a cohort of your peers and see right. see where that goes. Yeah, that, that's definitely a long term project. You know, I think a lot of people believe that this is something, and it can happen very quickly, and it can be something that happens in in a rapid pace based upon the Holy Spirit moving upon a congregation moving upon the leadership, et cetera. But it is typically a long process and there's a lot of competing factors that are at work here. So just to let you know, it's not something that happens overnight. It's something that happens with extended consistency. That's good. Um, we also, we've got a uh, kind of a question, kind of a, a general discussion point, I think, coming in from David on the, uh, on the past the mic uh, uh, comments here. He says, it is a blessing uh, to me to know that I am united in the death and resurrection of Christ with men like Tyler and Jamar. What I struggle with is the dividing line between what social service the church can slash should provide versus what Christians should expect uh, the government to provide. As a foster parents, we see 
the desperate need for assistance and what little is actually provided. I also know that criticism of government programs can cause hurt feelings. My personal experience as a foster parent, anything the government does is inherently bureaucratic. Uh, des- oh, gosh, I'm dyslexic, guys. Y'all need to... <laughs> depersonalize. Thank depersonalize. you. Depersonalize and ineffective. Uh, but aid is needed. I just don't know what the answer is. So kind of a, a general talking point uh, slash question. Um, what do you think, Ty? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. Um you, you know, I think it's it's it really largely depends on the context that that you live in, and it really largely depends on the political persuasions of your church body and the people around you. You know, I think historically the black church has said that we should be a hub. The black church, in particular, should be a hub for many different social services within the community, and also simultaneously speaking truth to power. Not only should um, be, so, had to be. Had to be absolutely. So yeah. there was a there was a there was a survival that you know necessitated us to speak in certain ways and do certain things that may have been a little bit odd and different to majority culture. But but I think it's it's very important for the church to be present and involved. Now when you talk about social services, the church can and should provide versus what Christians should expect the government to provide. I mean, that's more of a political, a political slash theological question that I think can go a number of different ways. I think that maybe the the church, the bigger and broader categories that the church should be providing conscience to the state and to the government about the ways in which the government continuously depersonalizes, not just in programs, but also in lack of programs as well. We cannot we have to look at plain evidence and some of the evidence is. It, it may not affect all church congregations in the same way, but some of the least of these, some of the marginalized, some of the people in disadvantaged um, circumstances may be helped by certain government programs. And I think that the church needs to approach these topics without the political uh, posturing, without the bureaucracy that is commonly, the partisan bureauc- bureaucracy, I should say, that's commonly associated with much of this political discourse. We have to take a look at how are people actually being affected? And that kind of causes us to break our paradigms a little bit. Jamar? That's good. This is a fraught question where any pronouncement you make is going to sound like you're binding people's consciences. And I want to be very clear that I don't think you can do that. I think there's sufficient complexity in how you know the church responds to political policy or advocates in certain instances for justice that that nobody can say necessarily like this is a blanket uh, principle that all Christians should should enact. I think though what I long for as a believer is some guidance from the church about how to think through issues that are played out in the political and the public realm. And so just like we talk about um, pro-life stances and you don't necessarily have to say this should be your policy position. You know how to think through the sanctity of life from a biblical perspective and then go out in the public sector and try to live that out. I would like that to expand uh, to, to include not just traditional justice issues that come from the majority, but to talk about mass incarceration and criminal justice reform to talk about, um, Public education, which which black and brown kids are are a, a large percentage of that, and so our kids in these systems, I would like to I would like to talk about food deserts in in certain places, whether 
urban is is where most people go to immediately, but also rural areas. And so can mm-hmm. the church provide guidance on that? And it doesn't always have to be from the pulpit. Uh, that's a great place if you want to sort of mobilize the entire church and get everybody an introduction. But Sunday school classes, uh, Bible studies, small groups, Wednesday nights, retreats, I mean, there are lots of places in in some of our more program-driven churches where you can insert these kinds of teachings. And uh, it, it's mm-hmm. it's an organic part of churches that are in minority cultures, because again, right. you have to. A lot of times you don't have the government providing the, the social support that you're looking for, and so it has to go through the church. Um, but I think in general, you, what you could say is the church can provide guidance uh, within the church and broaden its platform to include um, some things that may not be traditional in the majority culture. Tyler, do you want to pull another one that was asked uh, prior? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So this is a, a very deep question that I think everyone is wondering and, and wanting to know. And uh, the question comes from Josh. What's up, Josh? Thanks for leaving some questions. And I think it might be the most relevant question that we'll deal with today. And it is, um, who's your favorite NBA player and why? So. <laughs> I knew that was a setup. I don't, <laughs> I'm not a huge basketball fan. Honestly. Man, see, get out of here with that. No, just no, not. no. Jamar. <laughs> look, Jamar. Look, I haven't followed basketball Jamar. Since the 90s, uh, when the Bulls were killing it, because I'm from north of Chicago. So my favorite all-time player Jamar. is going to still be Michael Jordan. <laughs> I mean, that's just Jamar. not going to change. There's never, there's not going to be a second coming. You can't admit, Jamar, you cannot admit that you're not a basketball fan. Why? Because I'm black? That. Okay, let's, get, to, this, like, let's get the question about policing like, oh, blackness uh, up in here. <laughs> Nobody asked about the NFL. <laughs> or, or or NCAA football. Now I can talk about that. I didn't say I'm not a sports guy. Wait, is basketball the one where you you kick it over the field goal <laughs> and then if you steal all the bases, then you win the game? Y'all this killing is, me. This Y'all is from the guy me, who has man. a lightsaber in his office. Hey, it's okay. Hey. It's cool. <laughs> That's Luke, Lucasfilm licensed lightsaber. <laughs> 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 He's silly. Now I'll say this. Uh, I think my uh, my favorite basketball player is going to surprise you. It is uh, Dennis Johnson from the Celtics, point guard for the Celtics in the '80s. And uh, Dennis Johnson. Were you even alive then? Well, well, (laughs) the tail end. So, but they got you know they had this cool thing called video, so I can go back and watch. See, at least I actually Um, saw this player live, and I remember it. Right? Okay. Listen, listen. You notice how whenever my voice, this is just a tip. Whenever my voice is really high, like I'm, I'm, I'm lying. So, (laughs) no, but seriously, when Dennis Johnson is in studying basketball and. I tried to, when I played basketball in high school, kind of model my game after Dennis Johnson, defensive stopper, playmaker, and he was just kind of all things that the team needed. So when he played for the Suns, he was a big scorer. When he came to the Celtics, he was more of a facilitator. He was just uh, you know, the steadiest part of the Celtics dynasty. That included probably the greatest front court ever with Kevin McHale and Parrish and obviously Larry Bird and, and others. So Dennis Johnson would be my guy. I just love the way he plays. He had a great mid-range game. All the things that, you know, current basketball players don't pay attention to, he did. So that's so my favorite. I knew you were going to infuse some deep meaning. He's like he's like Paul being a missionary, all things to all people. You know, you you, you love that metaphor. I got you. I got you. Absolutely, man. Everything is deep, man. <laughs> <laughs> I got to point out. I got to point out, though, my wife just joined. So what's up, baby? Oh, man. 
He's Uh-oh. in trouble. He's now. in trouble. Did you hear me? Because he was he was he was talking about how he messed up the honeymoon. About that. <laughs> well, I tell you what, we've also got a uh, question coming in on the live chat here from uh, Carly Skinner, who says, "As a white woman, how do I use my privilege to educate my white friends while still being sure to elevate black voices?" For instance, in the PTM group, we've discussed white Christian leaders who speak out about racial healing, but fill the space more than the voices of those uh, of their black friends. What uh, what's the line? Footnotes. Um, So, yeah, there is a lot of work. This is a great question, because a lot of times folks in the majority, white folks feel silenced in conversations about race, especially in our past the mic group, uh, where we often say. Take a seat. Listen for a while before you talk. And I think that's good and that's healthy. It can be extremely frustrating for someone who's not used to doing that or or thought this was, you know, some other conversation where everybody's got, you know, the the same kind of airtime. Well, a little bit of background for that. Black voices have been silenced throughout U.S. history. This is why, one of the reasons why we need something like Black History Month is that the contributions of people of African descent have been glossed over, ignored, or deliberately uh, left out of the history. And so and so, there have to be opportunities for minorities to speak and even, quote-unquote, take the lead on conversations. So that's some of the background. Now, if you're in the midst of that, you can feel like you're sitting on your hands waiting for your turn to speak. I say, you know what? You probably do have an opportunity to speak. It's just not two or four black people, it'll be two other white people, which can serve a tremendous um, service to to the cause of racial reconciliation and justice. Because quite honestly, you can have conversations that we can't. I'll never forget uh, the, the chant by a fraternity, the SAE fraternity in Oklahoma. They were on mm-hmm. a bus and it was a secret cell phone video of a chant that used the N-word, there'll never be a N-S-A-E, all this stuff. What? I can't get in that conversation, but had there been someone on that bus or on the cruise ship where they learned it during the leadership team retreat or whatever it was to intervene in that conversation when it was all white people, that might have saved some pain and some harm. On a smaller scale at your Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner table, um, amidst your friends, even on Facebook. And so I know a lot of people are doing that and they're taking hits for it. We need even more of that. So that can kind of scratch the itch of you want to say something. It's just, you know, redirected toward it. And then as you do say that, use footnotes, cite black authors, cite films with black people in it, cite the reformed African-American network, show them the sources that you're accessing that are building your awareness. And that will lead them again, to to access those same sources and thereby promote or elevate uh, African-American mm-hmm. voices. What do you think, yeah. Tyler? Yeah, I think that's good. No, I think that's perfect. I think that's that's exactly what I would have said. So we'll leave that mm-hmm. there. Um, also, Will, he says in the comment, what's up, Will? I'm a member, a white member of a black church. In my experience, there are very few men both in my church and in the predominantly black churches I visit. Is this something you see as well? If so, should the targeted discipleship of young black men be a priority for white evangelicals for the sake of investing in future black leadership? Is this even possible with the culture gaps that exist? Now, I'll kind of take the lead here. I'll say historically, 
in in my context, my personal context, I've been a little bit spoiled because there's been a very high concentration of men, very high concentration of two-parent households, which produces lots of great things for families and communities in the surrounding area, lots of upward mobility. The stats are clear. Now, I will say that if you go to many black churches, predominantly black churches, that is that is starting to change a little bit, but it has been consistently as of late something that you will not see. You will not see very many men. You'll see a, a heavy um, female presence. Now, part of that is is from a complementarian, egalitarian standpoint. Part of that is because, um, you know, historically black women have had to stand up based upon the black men not doing what they're supposed to do and also black men being erased and black men being targeted by majority culture. I think there's a lot of different um, factors that go into why that is the case. I would urge people not to assume, though. And I think sometimes what, what tends to happen is we see this, we're like, man, we're the black men. And and I had a lady come up to me a couple of years ago at a panel um, during the, the intermission of a panel. And she said, you know, I really appreciate what you're saying, but you know, what, what are you going to tell these black men to stop sleeping around and do all this? I'm like, wow. Oh, yeah. Man. You know, it was, it was just, it was a surreal experience. And I think there was a, an assumption that, oh, well, because I haven't seen it, it doesn't exist or, or, oh, they must be out doing something they're not supposed to be doing. Oh, or they might be doing this. And at the same time, there has been a growing, and this is inside baseball a little bit, but there's been a growing doctrinal emphasis on word of faith-ish communities um, and word of faith-ish doctrine that has infiltrated the black church in many ways. And what that tends to do is hyper-focus on women. So the rhetoric becomes almost feminized because they are the heaviest constituency of that demographic. Now, some people have used that to their nefarious advantage to gain wealth, gain alliance and and other things. And, and it has been something that is um is very angering and frustrating to watch in my particular tribe. Now on the flip side, we can't negate the the community and the cultural impacts and effects of black men consistently being under threat, not just within um, predominantly black communities and majority black and majority um, uh, culture communities, etc. Would there be a great opportunity for targeted discipleship? Yes, as long as it does not lead to assimilation. As long as it does not lead to the robbing and the draining of the cultural um, diversity that brings, that comes from black voices. As long as you're not making them a version of yourself, but you are trying to love them and care for them, I, you know, go disciple regardless of the cultural impacts, but keep the cultural impacts in mind. You know, don't just use white faces and white voices in Euro and Anglo-centric dialogue when discussing them, when discussing things with them. And and also another thing that's very important is it is it is typical for people to go into predominantly black context and use like total depravity. That's what you'll lead with because it's the first T in the tulip. So you'll lead with total depravity. You know, you're a wretch undone. You, and that doesn't fly because they they hear that all the time. <laughs> so it's almost reinforcing low self-esteem in people to just say, oh, you're just a sinner. You, you, you're nothing. You're nothing but a worm. You, you know, it's just like, whoa, like, can we can we lift up the Imago Dei? And is there a different way to present these timeless truths while not denying sin, but at the same time elevating 
you know, the beauty and, and the diversity that God has created us with. So those will be just some scattershot thoughts, Jamar. And just a real quick historical uh, context. So a, a woman named Christine Lee Hireman, a scholar of history, wrote a book called Southern Cross, which is incredibly interesting because she's talking about the fact that what we now know as the Bible Belt was for a long time a very rough and tumble, ungodly region. And there were these very clear ideas of masculinity and machismo and honor. And in that context, people who were evangelizing, who were sharing the gospel, had a really hard time sharing the gospel with men. And we're talking about poor white men because it was seen as a feminizing kind of religion because what they heard from these evangelists was that if you believe in Christ, that means you have to stop drinking, you have to stop dueling, <laughs> you have to stop brawling with people, you have to stop cursing. All of these right. markers of manhood in you know the late 18th or, and, and 19th centuries, you had to give it up and go be with your family, which, of course, we honor the family, and, and that's a biblical principle, but just understand to, to their ears and to their understanding of what made a man a man, that mean you had to drop all of that. So they had a tough time, even among mm. poor whites, you know, 200 years ago, evangelizing yep. men because Christianity, the way it was presented, not as it actually is, but the way it was presented seemed like you had to give up the strongest, toughest parts of what made you a man in order to be religious. And so, you know, I think right. this is a pervasive topic in the church that goes far beyond the black church. And uh, it should cause us to rethink how we present the gospel message, especially in light of gender, ideas about gender and masculinity and femininity. Yeah, yeah. Um, Josh asked a, another question that I thought was really good. He said, what has been the typical fruit of you and Jamar speaking? If you spoke at an average evangelical conservative and mostly white church, what percentage of the congregation do you think gets it? Jamar, you're the, you're the traveling speaker. I have been traveling a ton. Uh, so, And let me just tell you a little bit. I went to Dort College, which is in northwest Iowa, Iowa is one of the top 10 whitest states in the union. It's over 90% white. If you look at, depending on the study you look at, it's like number five, six or seven whitest state. And so in that environment was very interesting because I went and I talked about race and they don't really have different races. Um, Latinos are the largest Mm. minority there, uh, but they have very few opportunities even to interact with black people even if they want to. So that was an interesting environment. And then last week, I, I went to Charleston, South Carolina, which uh, in the early 19th century was the only state to have a majority African population until later in, in the 19th century, Mississippi caught up. But it was one of the few states that had more black people than white people. And that dynamic and, and the influence there, you can still feel it. But I'm speaking mm-hmm. at mostly white evangelical you know, fellowships in both of them. And and what I found in speaking is is there are generally three groups, right? There's 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 the extremes. There's the folks who are all on board and you 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 gotta tell them to put their seatbelt on because they're ready and raring to go. It's just like sit down, chill out. Okay. And then there's the folks on the whole <laughs> other side who um 
don't want to hear it. Everything you say about race is is liberal, social gospel, anti-biblical, um, alternative facts, fake news, and and we need to stop talking about race, and then it won't be a problem. We're all part of the human race type thing. Those are the extremes. In the middle, it's like a bell curve type of deal. In the middle, where most people are is they realize there's something wrong in terms of race in the church. There's not the diversity we need to see, or there's some backwards ideas, but they're not quite sure what to do about it. They're not quite sure what sources to trust. And so that's, I think, one of the things that Pass the Mic and Reformed African American Network serves is that, you know, generally the theology, the theological stances we have say, okay, I'm, I'm, I, I know what they're about theologically, so now I can listen to them with a more open mind about race. But there are also just folks who, 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 are, who are like, yeah, I want to do something, but I just don't know my place as a white person, or I don't know, you know, I don't want to get in trouble because I, I say the wrong thing. And so that's what I get mostly. Uh, the most vocal fo- folks, unfortunately, are the people who are pushing back against any of these conversations. However, I do recognize that the reality is most people are just trying to figure it out. And then other people are are ready and raring to go, and uh, and and so that's what I see in in most of the places where yeah. I speak. It's good. Yeah, I'll say something that's kind of semi controversial. I don't mean it to be dismissive, but I, I you know, if you're talking about who who gets it, I don't really go in caring or worrying about that. And and here's what I mean. Um, I've spoken at a number of these events, and one of the things that tends to happen sometimes. You know, churches will bring me in to speak about this and kind of our tribe and church association. One of the things that tends to happen is I feel this enormous pressure to get everything in in this 30 to 45 minute to hour to two hour time block. And I feel enormous pressure to speak accurately and thoroughly and perfectly and choose my words wisely. And and those things are good in trying to be uh, gracious and accurate and, and theologically true. Those things are great, but one of the things I've I've tried to release is the pressure for me to do it all in one session. And I don't know of anyone who, when they heard one session, all of a sudden just flipped and changed. I, I don't I don't know of anyone who ever did that. But that it was the consistency not only of one person coming in, but their entire environment pointing their gaze towards a more holistic, broader view of justice in the gospel and scripture. That has been what has changed most people. And, and one of the things that that really wears us wears us out and wears us down is we, we feel like we have to win every conversation. I mean, there's, there are going to be some people who just don't care. And then there are going to be some people who are wide open. And I leave that to God. What I'm trying to do is speak as accurately, gra- graciously, and truthfully as possible and I'm not trying to win every everyone over. I'm trying to plant and water seeds and That's trust right. that the Lord does the work. A lot of planting. But yeah, there's there's a there's just this mentality that, man, wow. So we're gonna have someone come in and speak about racial reconciliation and ethnicity and all these and, and justice. And wow, this is gonna be an awesome moment for us. And and you're putting pounds of pressure on <laughs> this one person, he or she, 
to come in and do the work that you should be doing 365 right, days a year. That's right. That's right. And let me you know, let me I, so let me yeah, put an exclamation ahead. point on that is I turn down invitations where it seems clear that this conversation about race and Christianity hasn't really been broached before. Like you don't bring in an outside speaker to have the conversation that you're already supposed to be having and set that person up to take all the hits and all the blows that you haven't taken yet. So I want to come in behind all of the trailblazing that leaders uh, in the church have already done about this issue so that they can say, I mean, you ought to be able to say, you know, where your church is, what questions they have, how they've responded in the past to these conversations. Um, so that I'm just putting an exclamation point on what you said, Tyler, and then I'll put it put in a little end note there too. I loved this in Charleston where they had the One Kingdom conference where I most recently spoke. After I, I spoke, they didn't just go on to the next thing. They paused and basically had a time of prayer and reflection. And the challenge was take the message that you heard and see what what God's doing with it in your heart. You know, is there a specific action or a specific burden that you have as a result of what you heard? And that was great because someone came up to me afterwards and said, I figured it out. Here's here's where I need to be pushing in terms of of race, racial reconciliation. And so even just, I mean, it was probably five, ten minutes. It was not that long, but it was the idea of hearing a challenging message about race and the gospel, but then not just getting up and going off to lunch, but actually sitting down, reflecting, asking God to show you a way that you could be part of the solution and part of building his kingdom. So if you have an event like that coming up, a panel, a talk, whatever, I would highly recommend seeing if that could fit in somewhere because it might spur people onto action even better than just hearing information. Building off that, actually, Elodie is right yeah. in on the oh. uh, the live show. And, what up, uh, e? Hey, Elodie. Uh, she says, should we continue to try e. to convince people of the racial issue mm. in the American church? When do you know when it's time to leave people in their own ignorance? All right, T. Oh, man, you silly. Now, I think there's been much debate on this. Much, much debate. I'll... I'll leave it at this, that <laughs> you need to pick your battles. Yeah. And it is, we have to be as harmless as, as doves, as wise as serpents. And we don't need to engage every single person with the same intensity, with the same attention, with the same force. Um, some people you have to, what I've started to do is we'll have one or two sentences back and forth, especially on social media. And if I sense that they're genuinely trying to learn, well, then we can continue the conversation. If I sense that they have already a preconceived mentality and nothing I say is going to actually matter, I'm not going to necessarily say I'm wasting my breath, but I'm not going to exert energy that could go somewhere else. I'm not going to get riled up. Um, I'm not going to expend a lot of, of effort. But what I am going to do is I'm going to say, hey, there, there are great books on this topic. So read Divided by Faith, read Doctrine and Race, um, You know, read uh, disunity in Christ, read these books that really talk about these separations and engage with them because they make the argument better than I can in much longer form with much more research. So I tend to, to point people to resources and see if they'll actually go and read them. A lot of people don't. They just want to kind of go back and forth with you based upon the fact that you're making them uncomfortable or what have you. I don't think we should give up on people, quote unquote, but I think we need to think about the future generations and 
how is this helping to foster justice in my community, this one Facebook conversation mm-hmm. or this one argument that someone wants to have? They want to pull me out for lunch, do a two-hour argument mm-hmm. about these things back and forth. How is this actually helping and could I be use, using this time praying? Could I be using this time? I mean, not to Jesus, Juki, but honestly, you know, could I be using this time in self-care? Could I be yeah. using this time, you know, building an institution or a structure that's going to help someone else? Or could I be spending this time working with people who actually want to know more and actually want to promote justice? So you really have to pick pick your your battles, pick your fights, Jamar. It, 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 you're 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 dead on. It's it and it's very contextual. I I really don't get into it on social media. I just I've got a family. I've got doctoral studies, reformed African American network, and a podcast. There's a lot of other things I need to be doing than going back and forth on social media, which nine times out of ten is not really going to move the needle in terms of anyone's opinion. Not mine, not theirs, and so social media. No, I don't. I don't. Very rarely do I do I engage at all. I just put it out there, right? If you don't like what I'm saying, you don't have to follow me. Um, but and and here's the challenge I think, particularly for minorities and their allies. If it's a local congregation, or even a family member, you could right. say, I think you actually have a responsibility and obligation to yes engage. Yes. By that, I don't mean you're a doormat, and I don't mean you argue incessantly. What I do mean is that you can't just say, well, we disagree, and totally cut off all conversation. You have to be at least open to the possibility that at some point they might come along. And so leaving that door cracked for the opportunity to engage rather than breaking fellowship or whatnot. Now there are extreme cases, yes, but I'm all I'm, what I'm what I'm mainly addressing is uh, people who we know personally, we have a greater opportunity and, and responsibility even to to try to engage them. And it's not terribly different from sharing the gospel, right? So so on the one hand, Jesus says uh, when he sends the the twelve out or the disciples out, he says, you know, Go preach the message. If they don't listen, shake the dust from your sandals and move on to the next town. Yep. So clearly there's a principle of, all right, they're not hearing it right now. At the same right. time, you you know how you came to faith. And it maybe wasn't the first time you heard the gospel. Maybe someone planted right. the seed. Maybe then there was a long-term friendship that helped you see. Maybe there was a, a, a moment where every, the light switched on. Or maybe it was gradual. You never know. I think it's a similar dynamic yeah. with racial conversations. If people are initially resistant or hesitant, you never know when the light could go on, nor do you know what role you're playing in helping them develop right. awareness. You could be the one who starts the conversation, or you could be the closer who who gets to witness uh, a transformation in their mindset. Question. This is coming in from Jay. Uh, Jay writes and he says, you know, especially if you're not in a massive city with tons of options, it can be really hard to find a good church. A lot of times I feel like they, you have a choice between a church that cares about reconciliation, but has a lot of problematic teaching, uh, many of whom, for example, uh, would deny me membership because I was baptized as an infant or a church that is solid in its theology uh, for me, which would for him, that means reformed, uh, but is stuck in a white culture, cultural slumber. Uh, when you're faced with those options, how do you choose what to prioritize in finding a body to join yourself? That's, yeah, that's that's a that's a very good question. Um, 
You know, I think it comes down a lot of times to decisions and things that you find to be a priority for you and your family. Um, one, one of the things that I, I tend to see is that people look at certain churches and call them, quote unquote, unbiblical or heretical because they don't fit within the tribe. And that's not I don't think that's what Jay is doing. But I think sometimes we have to expand our borders to think about the ways in which we perceive someone else's doctrinal difference as heretical could actually just be just a different interpretation than us. Um, we have to make sure we we major on the majors, minor on the minors. Um, but I, I think that there are opportunities where the Lord will call you to a place that is not necessarily woke, quote unquote. Um, I hate using that term, but that is what it is. I love that. It's term. not necessarily, <laughs> you love that term. Oh, I hear that a podcast a episode coming up. About, Why do you like that term? Anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that threw me off. We're going to have to talk about that. But <laughs> this whole idea of they may not be where you want them to be in certain areas, but you can provide that change and you can be a catalyst. The reality is regardless of if you're in a church that is great in social issues and speaks to justice or a church that is not, there are always going to be things to contend with. And there's always going to be a stand that you have to take yourself as a member of that body. Now that may be different in different contexts, but you will have to take a stand. As long as you know that going in, it is very, I think it's very important to see where the church is on these issues. If some is passionate, if you're passionate about something, you're saying, Hey, I'm looking for a church, want to be a member here. What is, what does this church believe about justice? What does this church believe about mass incarceration or pro-life or what have you? Those things are important to talking about your long-term fit, but don't negate the fact that the Lord might be sending you to that, that place as a catalyst, as someone who pushes uh, forward, um, this mentality of justice, this mentality of the image of God and all people. So you might be used as a catalyst. Don't deny that possibility. Jamar. Uh, it's very difficult. I've I've often been in that situation of, you know, once I learned about Reformed theology and I wanted to, to sit under that kind of preaching and teaching, it, it often became, because most um, African-American churches aren't overtly Reformed, which doesn't mean they don't hold to some of the same doctrines, um, but, but, you know, it, it, it didn't, it didn't strike my ears the same way. I think now I'd be a lot more savvy about how to um, listen for biblical truth, even though it might sound, uh, you know, they, it has a different cadence. They use different vocabulary, whatever. So amen to your point about let's, let's, let's not jump to conclusions about heresy, what is and isn't. Let's major on the majors. Definitely amen to that. Uh, that being said, you know, I think one of the things we've got to guard against is this church shopping mentality. Um, and I'm all for choice, and I think that's one of the great things of the Protestant Reformation, but we can also kind of uh, get caught up in this church shopping, church hopping mentality. And what I mean by that is, you know, we treat it at like we're consumers, and so as soon as the church doesn't satisfy my needs, on to the next one, or I'm not going to be comfortable anywhere if they're not satisfying my very particular needs, which you expand that to 50, 100, 150, 1,000 people in a congregation, that gives an impossible job. And so one of the things I think we need to do is love the church as it is, not how we want it to be. So when you go to a church, understand that that is the church you are joining. 
And as much as you can try to push and, and, and initiate change, you've got to ask yourself, if I don't change anything and the church remains as it is now, is this a place where I can be comfortable? And that's the church you have to love. You can't love the church that you hope is going to be there once you do all your activism within it. Um, that's good. Not that you shouldn't push. I'm just saying, you know, we're 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 part of a congregation and a body, right? And so that that requires a certain commitment, even in the face of dissatisfaction. But that doesn't mean you can't do anything. So certainly you can you can help help move along certain conversations and change. But I would say whatever church you're going to find a way to satisfy that need that doesn't necessarily uh, rely on changing the entire church. And so maybe it's a small group you go to, maybe it's a volunteer opportunity mm. that you have. You're, you're always, you're always going to be at a place that's not, you know, doing everything you think a church should be doing. And so what are you doing to make sure that you're taking care of yourself and also that you're not being a hypocrite and, and just calling right. out problems without being part of a solution? Hmm. Yeah, you're you're much wiser than I. No, I'm young. I'm young and impatient. But um, <laughs> okay, we got one more. I I wanted to get to this question because a couple of people have asked similar questions. So I kind of want to discuss this, and this might get us into some trouble. Um, good trouble. <laughs> um, always Morgan, a good way to close things yeah, out when you got no time. <laughs> yeah, both, both Morgan and Isaiah kind of talk about, and thank you guys for leaving your questions. Kind of talk about this idea of. Marxism and critical race theory and Isaiah's question in particular, he said, how would you respond to someone who says they are concerned that unbiblical assumptions and assertions of the critical race theory are being presented as absolute fact in a lot of discussions around race in reform circles? I think this is an important question. Um, let me let me take the lead and then Jamar, you can you can uh, talk about this as <laughs> Go well. Go for it. Test the water. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm just saying because we get this question sometimes. And here's what I'll say. Everyone has a framework. Everyone has a framework. And everyone has a sociological framework that they find to be most uh, closest to or, or most aligned with the reality of the world in which we live and the reality in which of the country in which we live. And a lot of times people are telling me that they don't want a certain type of framework. But everyone has a framework. Everyone has a cultural persuasion. Everyone has a sociological way of viewing the world. Everybody does. It doesn't matter. You can say, you're, yo, I'm totally biblical. I just take from the Bible. The Bible was written in cultural context as well. So you can't just say, you know, no framework, no critical race theory, et cetera. Now, I believe there are compartments to this discussion. So I believe that there is a theological compartment to this discussion. And I believe there is also a sociological and historical and other compartments to this discussion. And I think we need to be careful about stepping into sociology and assuming that because we know a few scriptures, we automatically understand the social conditions of this world and we have proper framework just because we're Christians. And that is the exact same thing that Whitfield and Edwards and some of these other names that were brilliant and 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 smart and knew all the theology, but could not apply that properly in a sociological context. So I, I would say, let's be careful about assuming we don't have a framework. And I think critical race theory has some good things attached to it and some things that are not so good attached to it. But that's with every <laughs> cultural framework. 
I don't think it's any different than any other cultural framework that is straining to I- interpret the world through a particular lens. I mean, if we take a look at, we also have to realize that this is really not necessarily the things we're talking about. We may have new categories for them, but they're not necessarily new. Like when Frederick Douglass talks about, you know, power conceding nothing without a demand, that was in, you know, 1857. So that wasn't in 1950. That was, you know, coming from James Cone or Peggy McIntosh or what have you. He was speaking from his perspective in the cultural context in which he lived. And so we have to be careful about assuming that it just comes from critical race theory because that's what people have told us and that's what we've been taught Maybe it has deeper origins. Maybe it looks more like the gospel. Maybe it looks more like the Old Testament. Maybe it looks more like comprehensive biblical views of justice than what we think. Now, are there are there problems with potentially using crossover language, what have you? Sure, um, there may be. But to be honest with you, everyone uses that, that crossover language. Everyone uses their own version of some sort of non-Christian framework by which we view sociology and yeah. history, et cetera. If you say white or black inter- as racial terms. Sure. That's, that's yeah. Not- Majority, minority culture, dominant, subdominant. Like it's, there's so many different ways of viewing this and there's so many different qualifications and categories that I think we've kind of made critical race theory a little bit of a boogeyman instead of actually saying what in this is, is true, what in this reflects our culture. And then what do we acknowledge is limited and saying, okay, we don't just take this and preach this as doctrine, or we don't take this and try to fit this into a biblical context, but we also recognize that there's cultural scenarios and ethnic struggle within the Bible too. So go ahead, Jamar. Word. Uh, Close it out on a non-controversial note. No, man. Understand that even that critique is coming from a worldview. Even that critique is coming from a certain view of socio- sociological realities, right? So, so, so that to to view critical race theory as somehow antithetical to Christianity is in and of itself coming out of a very politically and and socially conservative framework, right? And so it gets back to your point that we all have a context and we all have a worldview and we're all coming out of something. What I often find is that people who level those ac- accusations haven't actually engaged with the theories they're, they're accusing you of holding. And so does anybody know that, what about critical race theory? I mean, it's, it's, its origination was in, is, was in law. Because they were seeing all of these imbalances along racial lines in the way criminal justice was applied. And so and so and so do they know even the history and the origins and, and where it's been and where where it's going? Do they know the field? Marx, Karl Marx, a lot of folks say talking about race or whatever is is Marxist. Have you have you read the Communist Manifesto? Do you know how people have applied it? Or are you just parroting other folks who say this is what it is and then it's bad? That's often right. what I find. Now, that being said, here's my approach. I spent five years in seminary earning a master in divinity, and I didn't go through all of that just to retreat into the church and never engage outside of you know this very narrow slice of Christianity, which is Reformed theology. What I went to seminary for is to know what I stood for and what I believed at a very deep level so that then I could go out into the world and engage with whatever critical race theory or or, you know, different ideas 
and and say, okay, well, this lines up with my faith and this doesn't, and so I can keep this and incorporate this, but this other stuff I have to say is coming from a very unbiblical, ungodly worldview, and I can't incorporate that or use it the same way I would this other stuff. I think Christians need to not be scared of, why would we need to be salt and light if we're not going to go out into these places that that need flavor and distinctiveness or go out into the places that are dark and shine yeah. light? So so yeah. to me, you equip yourself in order to engage, and I would like to see some more critical engagement with these things that we're saying are so unchristian, parts of which are unchristian, other parts of which might sure. be useful. Yeah, and I, and I think also, you know, we have to take a look at the fact that even some people that are prominent within the Christian circle and the evangelical circle believe that Dr. King was a communist, was a Marxist. They believed that. They were convinced of that, that this was just a Marxist movement and a communist movement. Let me tell you, um, quoting Dr. Think King among that, white evangelicals is a very recent phenomenon, positively yeah, quoting him. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think that we just have to take a look at, man, we need to be careful about where we're aligning ourselves and what we're assuming is true um, on both sides for sure. Lastly, I think some of the things we have assumed to be biblically faithful and gospel true, it's just because we we have pastors and, and spiritual leaders who tell us this and <laughs> they haven't really studied it, but they tell us this. And so we believe them because, oh, well, that's pastor so-and-so and that's doctor so-and-so. Right, and that's, right, right. of course he's right. Of course. And, and I asked it, he never said, he never expounded. He never right. actually said Just why he believes it there. or that he was qualified <laughs> to even speak to this. Did he study this? Has he, I mean, what, how do you know he knows what he's talking about outside of this? Anyway. Well, the only, the, the I'm, last, I'm going to get thing. into trouble, so keep going. So well, keep going. no, typically because I, I think you're right. They haven't really studied. They heard somebody they trust say it and now, you know, they apply it without deep understanding, which we all do, right? But in this conversation, what I often find is when people put out things like, well, that's a secular theory or whatever, it's, a, it's often a deflection. It is a way to turn the conversation and delegitimize whatever point you're trying to make. And so there may be, you know, language getting in the way that's that's not straight out of the Bible or something like that. But there could be a kernel or a principle in there that is biblical. And and for whatever reason, the person doesn't want to engage that truth or that reality because it's hard or induces guilt or whatever it is. And so most of the time when folks level those accusations, it, accusations, it is a deflection. And rather than engaging them on the validity of what, you know, language I'm using or what tradition this comes from, I try to steer it back to the the central or the core point, which, which makes folks squirm. And so there, yeah. that's my last every, thought. Every that. cultural framework has consequences. Everyone. Every cultural framework has implications. Everyone has consequences. And we should scrutinize not just others, but our own as well. That's good. Uh, we want to thank everybody who tuned in for the live broadcast here on the Facebook group. On the, our, man, I want to do some more, Bo. This was no, being look. a no fun guy by cutting this off. <laughs> I want to do some more, man. Hey, man, the we, music is playing. We're going to do another one of these. Let's pull we, a chance we, the rapper. We could have done some more if somebody had shown up on time oh, and actually had a hey, solid hey, internet connection. See? All right. Low all right. Blow, bro. I had to go low from your blow, iPad to the computer and then back to the I computer I think that's again. a cultural critique of African-American <laughs> views of chronology and time. 
time. Oh, and CP so time? <laughs> <laughs> that is not at all what I'm saying. I was no, waiting for both. the essence of of my essence to catch up with time and space. And uh huh. No, that's space. that's not, that was Triler coming uh-huh. out. That was Triler. That's right. That's that's what it was. <laughs> Well, but one way or the other, we do thank y'all all for tuning in. I think we'll definitely do this again. We really appreciate all the questions that came through. And uh, you know what? Just for fun, since since we've, we we kind of stumbled our way to the beginning, I'm going to try something that may stumble our way in the end here. Okay. All right. So pulling back the curtain a little bit. Right now, the camera is actually set up on a fan. <laughs> like, like, you know, it, it looks it looks uh, relatively nice right now, right? We got we got kind of the panels in the back. We got the coffee uh, coffee bags hanging down. It's not the like the best. They're made angle. of hemp, by the way. No, well, they are. But 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 that is that's because that's where you store coffee, man. Uh, but no, this is a, but this is a really you know it's not the best angle, but it is on a on a on a fan here. So I'm about to turn on the fan. Oh, to wow. see what's about to happen. The I camera's going to fall. I, I, oh, let's see. Gravity. What, it's magnetized, I think. So. Oh, nice. All right, hang on. Hey, it worked. <laughs> that is awesome. There we go. Now Here's it's going to go floor. all the way to the door. Oh, and it feels really nice. Look too. at that. I, we could have done this the whole By time. By the way, this is not a normal fan. This is one of those Dyson fans with no blade. Hey, that's that's what you got to do because if it's you got to keep it soundproof, ah, right, and everything. Uh, so well, we, we both to, super fancy and nerdy. So. <laughs> we had to invest a little bit on the nice fan. All right, cool. I just wanted to try that. I thought it'd be a fun way to, to close out <laughs> as crazy as everything was this time. Yes. So thank y'all so much for tuning in. And I don't even know how to make it we'll stop. See so we'll see. Thank y'all. On the next, next, pass pass the mic. Pass the mic. You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit Pottery.com. That's P-O-D-A-S-T-E-R-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you in part by Ministry Pivot with Russell St. Bernard. This podcast features important conversations with industry leaders such as Nona Jones, Bishop Walter Scott Thomas, Reverend Dr. Nicole Martin, and so many more. Visit ministrypivot.com or on all streaming platforms.